Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Welcome to our Term 1 2024 series of the Bible Talks on John. This term, we are adding a weekly podcast to address some of the questions that come out of the Bible Talks each week. If you'd like to submit your own questions, visit campusbiblestudy.org slash tbt. That's campusbiblestudy.org slash tbt. And you can engage with some of the answers in a new Friday podcast. John chapter 5, 1 to 29. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Son does, does, that the Father does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. My name is Tim, I'm one of the pastors. Let's pray and ask that God would help us to hear his word, as hopefully you can hear me now a little bit better as well. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you continue to be patient with the world that you have made. That day by day you hold out your word of life so that we may hear and believe and live. And so, Father, we ask that today we would hear your voice and so respond rightly to you. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, if only you were there. The experience of seeing Taylor Swift walk out on stage and then joining with 80,000 other voices to sing the lyrics of Cruel Summer, it was truly euphoric. Now, I know you can go and stream the Eras Tour on Disney+, Plus, but it's no comparison to the exhilaration, the euphoria, the goosebumps of actually being there in the stadium. You just had to be there. Or at least that's what I'm told. Out of interest, who did actually go and see Taylor? Did you manage to get tickets? There's a few hands. Was it worth being there? There's some nods. There's a little less excitement than we were hoping for. Now, even if you miss out on the tickets, or you wouldn't call yourself a Swifty, perhaps one thing that the concert or maybe COVID taught you is that it's much better to be there yourself. It's awesome to experience something firsthand, whether it's a music concert or a live sport, or even just rocking up to class rather than watching online at home. You want to be there. So what does that mean when it comes to Jesus? You might wish you were there at the time, listening to Him, being part of the crowds there in person, seeing the miracles, hearing His voice, seeing His face. We can naturally think it was better for them, easier for them to believe. If we were there, if we saw it, surely we too would share their faith. So, are we missing out with Jesus? Like streaming the eras compared to being there in the stadium. You heard earlier that at the moment we're inviting the whole campus, indeed the whole of Australia and the world, to meet Jesus. I'm not sure if you've realised it's more than just a catchy slogan. It's a bold claim. You see, if I offered you the opportunity to meet Taylor, you might think I could give you some backstage access or or maybe even some exclusive fan meetup. I don't think it would be unreasonable to expect that you would see her in the flesh. So what do we mean when we talk about meeting Jesus? I mean, if you pick another figure of history like, like Caesar or Gandhi or Muhammad, I could tell you facts about them. You could know things that were true, but say that you'd met them. That's going a bit far, isn't it? So what's different about Jesus? In what sense can we actually offer that people can meet Him today? Uh, This is one of the questions that the Bible answers for us as we keep reading through John's historical account of Jesus Christ. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks here at the Bible Talks, maybe even in Bible study, John has introduced us to this incredible figure, Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh, He came into the world with two great goals. To shine the light of revelation, to make known God in the most intimate and personal way to the creatures that He has made. His second goal was to give life, 
to offer adoption into God's family, to all who would hear His words and believe them and receive Him. Last week we saw some of the great things Jesus did that acted like science to point us to Him, to believe Him, to have confidence. This week we see the power and the centrality of Jesus' words in achieving these great purposes. Uh, now, if you've looked at your outline, you see we've got a bit of ground to cover, chapters 4, 5 and 6. Uh, but don't worry, we won't be here for three hours. My son thinks that the longer the passage, the longer the talk, it's the same length as always. I uh, don't think we're going for a nice walking tour where we'll turn over every rock and examine every flower. We're a drone flying over the top today. We'll zoom in on some key details, but we'll skim over some others. Uh, so we're at point two, God is seeking true worshippers. Now, if you were God... I know that might be a scary idea, but if you were and you wanted to find some true worshippers, where would you go looking? Today, I imagine you'd probably turn up at a church and try and find someone who looked kind of honourable and respectable. Similarly, if you rocked up in the first century, you'd probably go to the, the temple in Jerusalem, maybe a Jewish synagogue, and find someone who looked righteous, blameless. Either way, I doubt you'd look for the picture that we read about in John chapter 4. Now, many of you are exploring this in Bible studies and your faculties through the week. If you're not in a faculty Bible study, can I highly commend it to you? And on the side of your outline, you can tick a little box saying, I'd like to join a Bible study group. A great way to keep on digging into God's Word and making friends at uni. But in summary, what's John chapter 4 about? Well, Jesus is on his way from Jerusalem back up north to Galilee, his home kind of region up the top. He's got to travel through Samaria. He comes to a well just outside the town of Sychar. But as he goes through Samaria, we've got this kind of ominous description in chapter 4 and verse 9. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. As you can probably guess, there's a little bit of a backstory to why the, the Jews in Judea and Galilee don't really want to hang out with those in Samaria. And it goes back, you know, 700, 900 years before. You see, God originally united all His people as the nation of Israel. Judea, Samaria, Galilee, they were one. But in the year 922 BC, so going back a little way, after the reign of King Solomon, the northern ten tribes of Israel split off, you can kind of see there, the top half split off from the bottom half from the tribes of Judah. 200 years later, in 722 BC, the Assyrian army marched on the northern kingdom of Israel and they conquered them. Uh, they took the people away, and in their place, they resettled Samaria. And they brought a whole bunch of different people from different nations, worshipping different gods. So we read in 2 Kings 17, the king of Assyria, having conquered Samaria, he brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, and Sephavim, and he placed them in the cities of Samaria, instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So this land, still in the middle of the land God promised to His people, now had a real mix of different nations, each worshipping their different gods. Now they even brought in Israelite priests to try and teach this group of people about how to worship the true God. But they never truly gave up their idolatry. They never truly followed Judaism. They were a mixed group of foreigners following a mixed group of gods. Samaria wasn't the place you'd go to find true worshippers. And yet, in the middle of one warm day, while His disciples were in town buying food, Jesus starts talking with a Samaritan woman who's come to draw water from the well. 
The conversation starts with Jesus asking for a drink, but then there's a twist. It turns out Jesus isn't the one truly in need. Instead, he's got even better water to offer. Have a look at verse 13 of chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now, naturally, that sounds pretty good. Who wouldn't want to drink of this water that is eternally satisfying? The woman's keen. So Jesus says, go grab your husband. Come and receive this great gift from God together. But then there's another twist. The woman says she doesn't have a husband, which Jesus says is kind of true, but he reveals that she's had five five husbands and now she's in an adulterous relationship. Now, we don't have many details of what's actually happened. But one thing we can be sure of, whether it's been through death or divorce, moving through five husbands, this woman has suffered greatly. And again, we don't know the details why she's in this adulterous relationship. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's grief, maybe it's desire, maybe it's all of the above, but she's seeking fulfillment in the wrong places. She's probably not the woman you'd pick from Samaria, with this kind of relational history. She's not only a short short list of true worshippers. But maybe we need to think a bit more about what true worship really is. Worship, it's new language that kind of just drops into this story in verse 20. Uh, We're told that worship is kind of what God's people did when they went to the temple. We saw last week the temple of the Jews was in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans had set up a false temple on Mount Gerizim in the land of Samaria. Jesus says there's a time that's actually coming when worship won't be focused around a temple in a particular location. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Then in verse 23, Jesus says that in some way that future hour has now come. And the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So God is seeking these true worshippers. But what is a true worshipper? Well, here's a chance to say hi to those around you. Questions on the screen. Have a look at the passage. What is a true worshipper? See if you can work it out together. All right, friends, let's come back together. What is a true worshipper? Uh, hopefully you saw some of the things that went with a true worshipper that describe what it is. True worshippers worship God the Father. Not in a particular place, but in a particular way. As Jesus spoke by the well, this new worship was primarily a future reality. But in Jesus, that future worship was available right away. You see, worship always has required access and awareness. Just like in the physical temple that foreshadowed it, that's what Jesus was offering. That's what Jesus means by worshipping in spirit and truth. Now, it's not like you can have spirit or truth. They're a package deal. They come together. You can't have true worship that's purely intellectual without any spiritual connection. You can't have true worship that's purely spiritual without any intellectual foundation. 
True worshippers worship God the Father in spirit and truth. This worship is made possible through God the Son. We saw in chapter 1 that Jesus, the Son of God, He has been filled with the Spirit of God to baptize by the Spirit. And He comes from God as the source of grace and truth. If you want spirit and truth, Jesus is your man. We also saw last week in chapter 2 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the place to come and to worship God the Father. True worshippers worship in Jesus. True worshippers worship in spirit and truth. And God's desire is for people to come to Him and worship in this way. And worship in the only true way. And now at this point in the conversation, Jesus' disciples return. The woman leaves. Has she realized she doesn't belong? Does she think that Jesus' disciples are their only true worshippers and she is on the outside once more? We may wonder if we didn't keep on reading and hear what happened next. You see, this woman probably wasn't well respected in town. She's probably not your natural influencer or gatherer. She's probably wise. She's alone at the well in the middle of the day. But having met Jesus, do you see what she does? She boldly proclaims in verse 29 throughout the whole village to anyone who will listen. She says, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And Jesus knows her relational history, but he's claimed that he is the Christ. And this woman is convinced enough to go and proclaim boldly, not only her past, but her, who Jesus may be. And this word of personal testimony from the woman is incredibly effective. Not only did many come out to meet Jesus, we read in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed with them two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the saviour of the world. It seems that this woman and many other Samaritans were welcomed by Jesus as true worshippers. They heard her words and believed. They came to Jesus, they heard His words and believed. They came to know that Jesus is indeed the Saviour of the world. And friends, doesn't this offer great hope for us? Here's a woman with a mixed racial and religious and relational history. She probably didn't have much respect or honour. She carried in herself a great deal of pain and grief. Seems others may not have considered her worthy of being a true worshipper. She may not have thought herself worthy of God. But Jesus extends to her an invitation to receive His words, to receive eternal life like a beautiful spring of water welling up in her, sustaining her. She is a true worshipper of the living God. And friends, if she is welcome, I take it that probably means you and I are too. And your friends and your family doesn't matter where you grew up, doesn't matter who or what you've worshipped, doesn't even matter who you've slept with. Jesus welcomes you. There's an offer to hear His words and believe. Will you be those who listen and believe? We're at point three, hear the voice of the Son of God and live. As we keep on reading, our hopes are raised that we're going to find more true worshippers. You see, if we had such a great response in Samaria of all places, then we read in verse 43 that Jesus is on His way to Galilee. 
Surely we're going to have an even warmer reception there. And it seems to be the case in verse 45, because they welcome Him having seen the signs Jesus did at Passover down in Jerusalem in chapter 2. But between verse 43 and verse 45 comes verse 44. It's a profound insight, I know. But it's a verse that doesn't seem to fit. But John kind of grabs us and shakes us with this verse to explain something important. And John explains, Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honour in his hometown. It's like as we start this next phase in Jesus' ministry, having left Samaria, we should have high hopes, but it's like this little storm cloud that comes out over all that follows in the coming chapters. We're not expecting that Jesus will receive the honour that He deserves, even among His own people. It is a sad irony. So Jesus travels on, First, he arrives in Cana, his kind of original destination, the place where he turned water into wine back in chapter 2. And when he's there, a bloke makes this trip up from Capernaum to, from Capernaum to Cana. He's an official and reckons it'll take you eight and a half hours to walk there. It's about 35 kilometers. He's made a fair trek and he's come to ask Jesus to heal his son. But Jesus seems hesitant in verse 48. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, you might have a footnote in your Bible telling you that the you in that verse is plural. What's the big deal? Well, though Jesus is talking to the official, He seems to be saying something that is true of the Galileans in general. They need signs. Now, those in Samaria didn't need signs. They didn't see any signs. They heard the words of the woman. They heard the words of Jesus. They believed and they were welcomed as true worshippers. But those in Galilee do need signs. And even then, we're not sure whether they will truly believe. But the official thinks he's different. He persists in his request. And when Jesus says his son will live, we read in verse 40, oh, sorry, verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and he went on his way. Here's the man who didn't see any signs, who took Jesus at his word and believed. And at that instant, from 35 kilometers away, his son in Capernaum was healed. Then in chapter 5, we go to Jerusalem. This is Jewish heartland. Maybe this will be a place where there's a better reception. As we read just before, Jesus meets a man who suffered greatly for his lifetime, unable to walk, left lying hopelessly with the vain superstition that he may be healed through some stirring of a special spring. But when he meets Jesus... He's instantly healed. It's hard to imagine the joy and the transformation that this guy receives. Surely being liberated by such a defining and from such a defining and debilitating sickness, surely he would overflow with thanksgiving. Surely he would believe. Surely he would worship. Surely he would be a true worshipper of the living God. But we see none of this. First, he gets into trouble from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, for breaking their Sabbath rules, carrying his mat. And then he dobs Jesus in for being the one who told him to carry his mat as he healed him. It's a jarring experience from what Jesus went through in Samaria. Here, Jesus is the place where he's performing great signs, where the, the Jewish people are, and rather than welcoming him and receiving him and believing in his words, well, haters are just going to hate and hate and hate and hate. Verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, 
because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. And as he speaks, it gets worse. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's a shocking irony. It doesn't seem to fit. Jesus shows great and compassionate power to heal this man, and he just suffers persecution from his own people. But even worse, when he reveals the profound unity that he has with his father, rather than worshipping him, they want him dead. We can long for signs and wonders. We can think that they are the, the high point of God's revelation and power. But you see that the words are where the action is. It's a bit like one time, uh, almost 15 years ago, when I took my girlfriend out for dinner. And now there were many signs that showed my great love. I got dressed up. I bought a nice bunch of flowers. We went to a fine restaurant. I even paid for it. But the greatest show of love was when I said the words, will you marry me? See, those words conveyed a, a power and a love that all the actions kind of pointed towards, but none of them could convey in all their richness and beauty. Now, that's right, words and actions must go together. In our sinfulness, words can be empty and hollow on their own. But when words are spoken with truth, they carry and they preserve great power. And Jesus has both. True words supported by great signs, and he's endorsed by the words of others. In verse 32, we're reminded that John the Baptist testified to the truth about Jesus. In verse 36, Jesus says he's done the works that God gave him to show who he is. And then we even read in verse, 30, sorry, in verse 37 that God himself has borne witness to who Jesus is. And in verse 39, the Old Testament scriptures, they also testify to who Jesus is. You see, there's so many great signs and so many true words, and they are preserved for us to give us confidence to believe and then there's also Jesus' own words about who He is. At the heart of chapter 5 is Jesus' own teaching, not just about who He is, but about the power of the words that He speaks. And Jesus says this is a result of the unique relationship that He has with God as His own Father. This is the claim the Jews think deserves death. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, being Himself, can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. It's a beautiful family likeness. What is it that God the Father and God the Son do? Well, in verse 20, the Father and the Son, well, the Father reveals all that He's doing to the Son as an expression of His love. In verse 21, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, and so Jesus the Son likewise gives life to whoever He wants. In verse 22, God has given eternal judgment to His Son, and God's desire is that all people honour the Son in the same way that they honour God the Father. Anyone who doesn't honour Jesus in this way does not honour God. You see, it's impossible to truly worship God and have a view of Jesus that makes Him in any way inferior to God, less than God. You dishonour God claiming Jesus is just a human prophet. You dishonour God claiming Jesus is merely a, a demigod, somehow created by God at some point in history. You dishonour God by failing to listen to Jesus' words and believe that He has been sent 
by God. You see, it's impossible to have God without believing that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Verse 24 continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you see the profound unity between the Divine Father and the Son, but also the power of the words that the Son speaks? They're words of salvation and life, words with the power to even penetrate death, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's an incredible promise. It's an incredible power. But when do the dead hear Jesus' voice? Uh, Isn't there a chance to say hi to those around you? When do the dead hear Jesus' voice? Have a look back at verses 25 to 29. I'd love to hear some answers. Have a chat. All right, friends, let's come back together. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, when is it that the, the, at the dead hear Jesus' voice? Any thoughts? Resurrection. At the resurrection? Verse 28, 29? Thanks. Other thoughts? Um, us now, receiving the water of life? That fits another one? So we've got the resurrection now. You may be going then. Uh, I think they're all great answers. Let's pull them together. I think as Jesus is talking about when the dead hear, or when it's talking about when do the dead hear Jesus' voice, I think they hear when Jesus speaks. And that may feel like a cop-out answer, but I think there's two key deaths and two key times. Uh, Jesus says the time is in the future, and it was present then. And I take it it was present then as Jesus spoke to them. His words, His bringing, made that hour present. Uh, As Ashley said in verse 28, He talks about a future time when the dead will hear Jesus' voice. And verse 29 makes it clear that this is the future judgment, when all of the dead will be raised, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting judgment. These are the two times when Jesus spoke in the first century and when He'll speak at His return. But what about the two deaths? Well, verse 28 seems clear, it's those who are in the tombs, those who have died physically will be raised physically to life again to receive God's judgment. But in verse 25, it's also the dead who hear Jesus in the first century. And those dead don't seem to be in the tombs. I take it, if you were there at the time, they looked pretty alive, at least physically alive. You see, you can have a pulse and still be breathing, but if you don't have a relationship with God you're dead. You're cut off from the source of life. Uh, You live in rebellion against God and you're a bit like those flowers that you chop off from the vine. As soon as you cut them off, they're cut off from the source of life. They might look nice for a little while, but their glory fades and fades until they return to nothing. Paul described the same reality in Ephesians chapter 2. He's describing the reality of people before they turned to Jesus. He said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world is a common reality. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a sober judgment. But even though they were the walking dead, if you like, they heard Jesus' voice and they could live. And live not just for the next 30, 50, 80 years, but for eternity. Such is the power of Jesus' words. But there's actually a third time which we're also reflecting on. Because even though Jesus no longer physically walks with us, His Word still speaks to us. And those who listen to Jesus even today can receive eternal life. You may recall, we've looked at it a couple of times, at the end of John's Gospel, he, he writes this in verse, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You see, it's the same outcome, whether you're there in the crowds and you heard Jesus speak and you believed and you received eternal life, or you read these words written in a book thousands of years later and you believe Jesus' words, you receive eternal life. Jesus still speaks to us through the words of Scripture, through the promises spoken from one believer to someone else. Jesus still speaks, offering life today. And do you know what that means, friends? You didn't have to be there. It's okay not being there. In fact, you actually know more now than they did then. You've got a better insight, a better revelation, a clearer picture, and the exact same offer. And so that's why we can make the bold invitation to our campus to come and meet Jesus. Because not only does He still live as the resurrected Lord of all, He still speaks. And so we can still hear His words and respond and live now, it's hard to get our minds around eternity. It's a long time. The idea of God's judgment can be a pretty scary prospect. Naturally, because we know ourselves, we can never be sure that we've done enough to be right with God, to escape His wrath. The reality is we can't do enough. We can't escape it by anything that we do. But did you notice that we can have assurance right now for what eternity will be like? It all depends on how you respond to Jesus' words. You've heard them today. Will you believe them? And if you do, God guarantees you that eternal life. God welcomes you as a true worshipper. God gives you this living water that bubbles up to life that doesn't end. But if you hear these words and you reject them, if you don't want to listen and you continue in rebellion, God's warning is stark. There is the resurrection of judgment that is still to come. Friends, do you see how important it is to meet Jesus, to hear His words and live, and to speak His words to others that they may live too? Friends, this is the joy of the Christian life and the responsibility of the Christian life, to believe and to speak these words. I will appoint for true work, true food, true life. As Jesus continues, or as we keep reading in chapter 6, Jesus returns back up to Galilee. He continues His travels. There's more great signs, there's more challenging words. Uh, this time Jesus is faced with a huge crowd, about 5,000 men besides women and children. They're out in the countryside, so Jesus asks His disciples, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip, he starts doing the sums, he works out it's going to be about 50 grand to buy enough bread, and even then the crowd might be hungry. That's beyond their means. 
Then at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, another disciple, Andrew, rocks up and he goes, hey, we've got this kid's lunchbox. Shall we see how far it goes? Jesus doesn't laugh. Instead, he thanks God. He breaks the bread and the disciples hand it out. The crowd eats. Everyone is full. They collect the leftovers and there's 12 baskets. The crowd see the sign. This is the work of God. They identify Jesus rightly as the great prophet of God. We saw a couple of weeks ago that God promised in Deuteronomy 18 that He would send a prophet like Moses who would speak His words, but all who would ignore His words, God Himself would require, well, judgment. They would be called to account. Naturally, they want to make this man who can give them such a feed their king, but Jesus has other plans. He slips away. As night falls, the disciples don't see Jesus, they start heading home. They row out across the lake. The weather turns bad, there's a bit of a storm, it's a pretty terrifying place to be, miles from shore, in the dark and in the wild weather. The only thing more terrifying is seeing a bloke walking out on the water to meet you. They're confronted by Jesus, they're comforted by Jesus. They have joy at His presence and they arrive at their destination. You see, Jesus didn't just speak the words of God. He showed again and again and again the power to provide for God's people and to protect His people, even across the waters, even through the storm. Now, the crowds weren't there. They didn't see it. But you and I know what happened. The next morning, the crowds wake up. Jesus is gone. They don't know where He is, but they head across the lake and they find Him. Now, these crowds may be physically following Jesus, but they don't believe in Him. And it isn't even about the wonder of the miraculous signs He's been doing. Just like a bunch of uni students, the crowd loves a free feed. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. You see, we all need to eat. And most of us will spend most of our lives working to put food on the table. But Jesus says there's an even more important work that we should pursue, one that provides nourishment not just for the day, but for all eternity. The crowd rightly recognizes that if eternal life is on offer, then they want to do what God requires of them. Verse 28, they said to Him, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. I think we've got time. No, maybe we don't have time for one last question. But the question that you could think about is, what does it mean to be, or how is believing in Jesus doing the work of God? But you want to go to class another four minutes, so we'll just think that was a fun question and we'll move on. If a defining aspect of work is how we sustain our own life, do you see how believing in Jesus is the ultimate work in that it sustains you for life eternally? This is the gift of God. And when we see work, it's not just about providing for our own needs, it's also about being generous to others. Well, we see that the work of God is not just to believe, but to share these words of life. This is what we saw back in chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. You see, when the woman goes into town to proclaim that she's met the Christ, Jesus teaches the disciples in verse 34, Jesus says, "'My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work.'" Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You see, Jesus also follows the pattern. What sustains him is more than food or drink. It's about obedience to God's word. But he knows that believing in God's word also brings you into a labor, into harvesting, into bring people to know Jesus and so receive eternal life. This is what the Samaritan woman did. This is what Jesus calls his disciples to do. Friends, this is the joy of the work of God to believe in Jesus and to proclaim his words to others. So, if this is your work, does that mean you quit your day job? Well, I wonder if you've come across the idea of being overemployed. Since work has become more and more remote, there's a group of people who have worked out that you can sit at home and do two full-time jobs at the same time and get double the money. It's driven primarily, I take it, by greed. It sounds good, uh, but there's a whole kind of web of forums on how to not get caught and how to survive. Now, in a sense, without the illegality of it all, the Christian life is a bit like this. You've got two jobs. Your first and your primary job is to believe in Jesus, to do God's work. That's not a nine-to-five vocation, it's 24-7. All of life, worship. But alongside that, Most of you will do a second job that puts bread on the table and allows you to be generous to others. Now, there's nothing that you need to hide about working these two jobs, but you do need to make sure that that second job that puts food on the table never takes over from your primary job about believing in the Lord Jesus and speaking His words to the world around you. And some of you may be freed up from that second job to spend more time doing the work of the Lord. But do you see over these chapters as we've kind of raced through them, Jesus is kind of just saying the same thing again and again and again. Different pictures, different metaphors, all to convey this same compelling and transforming truth. Do you want that living water that truly satisfies, that wells up like a never-ending spring? Meet Jesus. Only Only He can give you this water. Do you want to truly worship the living God in spirit and in truth in any time and in any place? Meet Jesus. He's the only place to worship the living God. And do you want to honour God and be spared the judgment that you deserve and receive eternal life? Meet Jesus. You hear His words in the Scriptures. Do you want the food that sustains you forever? Do you want to do the work of God and receive eternal life? Friends, meet Jesus. He is the bread of life. All who eat Him will live. This is the last picture that Jesus gives us. It's a confronting picture. But I take this image of eating Jesus is a picture of of faith, of belief. It's not something that you can hold arm's length, it's just a part of you, it's something that you can take away from you. Just like as you eat food and it gives your body life, you can't take it away again. As Jesus gives life to His children, that faith, that relationship becomes one with who we are. And God's great assurance is He will never cast His people away. Now, the Bible is real. God's desire is for all to hear and listen and believe. But not everyone did, and not everyone will. But the great assurance, the great picture that we see that we see in the words we started with, we also see in the words that we finish with in verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One 
of God. Friends, will these be words that you cling to and proclaim? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus came speaking the words of life, that through your scriptures and through one another we can hear these words and believe and live. Father, may we be welcomed as true worshippers. May we enjoy eternal life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.